If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be up here because it's my night to be in the, the security tower. I'm the tower guy. So uh, I am thankful for Jerry. So when you see Jerry, you guys make sure you wave at him and say thank you. Or uh, if you don't see Jerry, look at a camera and wave at a camera and he'll know that you're waving at him. I've been trying to get everybody in the church to wave at the cameras when you come in because the guy that's stuck in the tower, it, it really breaks up the monotony of it all. So uh, I'm waving back when you wave at me, okay? I mean, you just have to receive that in faith. Uh, but that's what that's all about. So tonight we're going to be in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. The title of this message is Throw the Stone. This is a very familiar passage. Hopefully I'll rescue it a little bit from familiarity. We're going to see how this works out. So tonight, let's get this thing started. Have you ever been confronted by someone who is not right? We're just going to let this sink in. I see a lot of smiling people. Have you ever been confronted by someone who is not right? To, to call them wrong would be a disservice to the word wrong. They're just altogether wrong and not right in everything that they're saying and doing. And we have to stand there and smile with the love of Christ when they're, they're doing that. I believe that women are better at tolerating this type of thing because in our maleness, we are often more wronger than the women are wrong. And every lady in the house said, <laughs> they understand. So they're much more tolerant of the fact that we can be wrong. So for the sake of a silly example I've written and to share in the common bond of humanity, I find that I am not wrong often, but when I am wrong, my wife tolerates it very well. And my wife said, amen. <laughs> She's working the crowd and not saying a word, uh, if you know my wife. Uh, now that you know that I've been wrong once in my life, what do you do when you're approached by someone who is standing against you for something that you did not do? Worse yet, what do you do when you find yourself in a position to where you did everything wrong and did it very well and you deserve nothing but judgment? Have you ever found yourself in that place to where you were the wrong person and you knew it? I have. For the former, we demand justice when it's somebody else. But when it's us, when we are wrong, we want the mercy. Justice can go hide in a corner somewhere. We want the mercy. Would you like to see what Scripture has to say about this? Because this is, I'm just really excited about this. I prayed and I asked God what to preach on. And I believe he's told me this chapter, John chapter 8. And I looked and I went, oh my gosh, um, what am I going to do with that? So we've got to get this thing started. So let me tell you where we're going to go. We're going to breeze over chapter 7, and when I say breeze, we're going to breeze over chapter 7. We're going to talk about chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and I'm going to do a short application, okay? When it's 5 till, somebody wave at me, give me a thumbs up, and, and, and y'all help me, because I've already been admonished by two people, one of them a teacher, uh, and one of them being a doctor. I won't tell you his initials, but his name is Brock. Um, LAUGHTER I will not go past 8 o'clock because the other person was his wife, and I'm not going to get whooped by either one of the two of them. Um, I love and respect them, so we're going to finish on time. The only person that goes late up here is Hunter, um, and he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> Hunter, that's for you when you watch this later. So we're going to get to the Scripture. This is the better part of this, this silliness, so let's get ahead of that. Um, it is the year of opposition. 
for Jesus. It is his third year of ministry. He is in Capernaum in Galilee. He's in the north part of Israel. He's unwilling to walk in Judea where Jerusalem is because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That's in uh, John chapter 7 and verse 1. And if you want to go to chapter 7, you can follow along with me while I'm doing it. In Jesus' own good time, he departs for Jerusalem in Judea. That's chapter 7, verse 10. To attend the mandatory feast of Sukkot or tabernacles, or I like the, 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 the term in gathering, the feast of in gathering. It was a 106 mile walk for Jesus to get there. The good news is, is that when he got there, it was anywhere between the, the temperature of 69 and 84 degrees. So it is a lovely time of the year in the month of October for Jesus to take a 106 mile walk to go to this feast, which is in Jerusalem. When he gets there, he's observing this feast. It is the last of the two harvest feasts. It is an exciting time of rejoicing. It's very exciting. It just followed the Day of Atonement when all of their sins are ceremonially um, done away with. So now they're free from that bondage. It's the Feast of Ingathering where all the crops are brought in, everything from the, the vineyards and the olive groves and, and all the crops and all the food is in. And they're blessing the Lord and they're rejoicing because God is good. Look at the provision that, that God is doing for them. Everybody is happy except Chapter 7 and verse 1, the Jews are looking to kill Jesus. Gosh, in all of the happiness, they're looking to kill Jesus. And why are they looking to kill Jesus? Because they have never forgiven him for what he did with the guy at the pool of Bethesda the year before at Passover. That's what's running in the backstory here. They've never forgiven him for that. In chapter 7 and verse 15, we see that the Pharisees and scribes... Um, challenge his authority and you'll never guess how they do that they challenge the fact that he's never been to bible school jesus says in chapter 7 and verse 16 my teaching is not mine but his who sent me in chapter 7 verse 19 none of you carries out the law verse 23 jesus corrects their wrong thinking when it comes to circumcision and healing a man he's still talking to them about the guy at the pool of bethesda that was healed he's saying you guys are worried about the law of circumcision when it happens on a sabbath we're talking about a very small thing here and you're good with breaking the law to do that but when i heal a man in every wit as the scripture says on a sabbath now you want to come against me for healing this guy so jesus not behind their back to their face he's saying i healed a man it's what i did this is the reason why i did it he tells him in verse 24 to judge with righteous judgment and not just the judgment uh, that you have to say that jerusalem was in turmoil would be an absolute understatement so let's take a quick look to see what everyone was saying chapter 7 in verse 5 his brothers did not even believe in him Verses 40 through 44, the peoples uh, reacted to the words of Jesus. They didn't know if he was the Messiah or not. They didn't know where he was coming from, where he was born. They said he can't be the Messiah because he was born in Nazareth, which was monumentally wrong. He wasn't born then, that's for sure. Um, many of the people had begun to believe that Jesus, the Pharisees lie about Jesus doing everything that he did by the power of the devil in his life. So they, the Pharisees are starting to get a little traction with the people and all of that. Um, 
verses 45 and 46 in chapter 7, the officers hear the words of Jesus and are stunned. Get this in verse 46. It says, never has a man spoken what this man has spoken. So his family has rejected him. The people are kind of flip-flopping and they're upside down. Some are for him, some are against him. The people that were sent to arrest him can't even arrest him because he's, he's so magnificent at everything he says and does that they were stunned. They just had to turn around and walk off. Nicodemus tries to take a stand for him in verses 50 through 52 to say that don't shouldn't we listen to this guy before we convict him of what he's doing the pharisees take an ugly shot i mean some of the pharisees were good not all of them were bad they say are you also of galilee because they're thinking jesus is from galilee aren't you also from galilee basically they're telling nicodemus if, if i can say this word and forgive me if i shouldn't say this word are you stupid for what you're saying nicodemus you're a pharisee for even saying this thing verses 47 through 49 the pharisees have already heard the words of jesus and have chosen to disbelieve more than that it's resulting in a blinding of their eyes to everything that's going on in verse 52 it says that look to the scriptures yourself nicodemus it says that no prophet comes out of galilee which was really kind of an overstatement that's not true at all because Hosea, Elisha, and Jonah. Jonah were all three of those from Galilee. The Pharisees miss everything that Jesus is telling them in chapter 7. So why am I going over chapter 7 at such a whirlwind? And you can't hopefully remember all of this. You're going to go home tonight and read chapter 7 in verses 1 through 11 in chapter 8, right? Owls twice. Do I hear three times? We're waking up, man. You guys are here, man. You're smiling again. Your eyes are open. It's a wonderful thing. Um... We have to do this because the things that you see happening in chapter 7, they're fixed to do a live action role play in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. All of these things that you're seeing where Jesus is taking shots and he's saying things to them. Judge with righteous judgment. And, and uh, you don't even practice the law yourself is what Jesus was telling them. We're fixing to see this in real time in chapter 8, verses 1 through, uh, through 11. Wow, and now we're in the body. This is part 2. Chapter 8. And verse 1, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, which is what he, he normally did. He did that often. In verse 2, it says, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down, and he taught them. He came back to the temple, is what he's saying. And it says he sat down to teach. And I wrote down that Pastor Ken is the only one that's doing this right. He sits down when he gets up here. So, uh, Pastor Ken, that's for you. Teach on. Uh, the thing that we need to know here is that the feast is over the Sabbath before, and now it's Simchat Torah. That's a fancy way of saying that the readings for the year end on this day. It's the eighth day. The feast went for seven days. Jesus is teaching on this day. I can tell you what he was teaching on. It was the last chapter, chapter and a half of, of Deuteronomy that morning. They start over in Genesis that night. So it's not part of the feast, but it's observed with the feast. Um, verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst. One, they knew where Jesus would be. They knew he would be in the temple. I, I mean, that much is, you knew this was going to happen with Jesus. He's not going to lay out while everybody else is going to church. But this thing seems like a setup uh, from the beginning for me. Really, it's another kangaroo court. 
This thing did not have to happen this way. They did not have to take this woman into the temple, break up a teaching to get Rabbi Jesus to decide on this because he was not in a position to decide on it anyway. He wasn't the priest with that responsibility. He was a rabbi that was just teaching. He was a teacher. This could have been handled uh, according to the law in the presence of a rabbi alone with the witnesses. The Pharisees are making a big statement about their intent and really what they're doing. They bring her into the temple complex, place her before Rabbi Jesus and the crowd of people that's listening to him teach. It says they set her in the midst of the people. They set, they set her right in the center, in the middle of everything that's going on, where they are, where he's teaching, and everyone is looking at this stunned woman. She is terrified. She knows her time has come. She knows she's about to die because she's committed a capital crime. She must die according to the law for committing this crime. And this much she knows. They say in verse 4, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. This implies witnesses. She was taken to detect in the act or to seize. In other words, they saw her, they found her, discovered her in the act of adultery. Not somebody said, but it's awesome. Oh, well, it's awfully convenient that they found this right when all this is going on and when they knew where Jesus was. And this happened at that moment and they discovered this and they take her hurriedly to the temple to get him. I guess it needs to be said that adultery is a big deal in the Bible. Spiritually and physically, it's mentioned in the Ten Commandments, all four Gospels, and ten other books of the Bible. I know this, that for this woman, it is all kinds of bad for her right now. But does something seem wrong about this to any of you guys? It just, it just seems off the wall for me. Verse 5, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22. Then they shall both of them die. So there's no discussion about what is to happen here. She and he must die for this sin. But this is a trap. They were looking for something to accuse Jesus of. We'll see this in verse 6. Either response that Jesus makes on this will get him into trouble. If he says he should execute her, then it puts him in trouble with the Roman law because according to Roman law, the only way that the Jews could put someone to death is if a Gentile entered into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, into the inner court. But if he says that, um, how did I say that? The power of life and death, is, yeah, okay. If Jesus says she should not be stoned, he is breaking the law of Moses. There are at least three people missing here. Four, if you take the high road, if there's three witnesses, they had the witnesses who caught her in the act. Where are they? They caught her in the act with another person. Where is he? They're not there. She is there. The Pharisees are trying to get, now get this, they still got this bad taste in their mouth about what he did the year before at Passover with this guy at the Pool of Bethesda. They're trying to get him to verbally contradict the law, and they think they've got him. Show me a denarius whose picture is on the front of this coin. Or render to Caesar what is his, render to God what is his. 
here they are. They think they're going to get him with this one as well. Chapter 7 and verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law, Jesus said. Now, I know this was ringing in their ears from the day before. Jesus said, you're not even keeping the law. They show up on chapter 8 in this verse right here, and they show up without the witnesses, and they're breaking the law just like Jesus said in chapter 7. But what sayest thou when the, the Pharisees said this? The Greek is way more emphatic than it reads in the King James. It says, now Moses says to stone such, but you, what do you say about this? The punishment for this sin was not debatable. They wanted Jesus to contradict this law. Verse 6, this they said, tempting him that he might have to accuse him tempting him to make her to prove to this is a trial in their eyes and it's got a mischievous intent this word has running in the background it's funny this word for tempt is also the same word that was used in that time to prove whether a coin was authentic or counterfeit so now they're fixing to put Jesus to the test to see if he's authentic or counterfeit, and they just don't know what they've opened up when they do it. So what is my point? I threw this in here while we're rushing through this. If you try to prove the living word wrong, you'll prove him right every time. Somebody say amen. Verse 6, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So he gets down, and he doesn't say a word, and he stoops down and writes on the ground. He writes. This is a literal word for he's writing something, not doodling on the ground, something being written. written. In these cases, when someone's brought before a rabbi, the rabbi would write on something that's not permanent. Usually it's the dust of the floor in the, the temple, and he would write down the name of the accused, and he would write down the law that they've broken, and they would write it in the dust um, because they could erase it. Let me go and say this just so we understand where we are with this. John does not tell us what Jesus wrote. We do not know. Let me, let me just say that right now. We do not know. Now, I can go there and I can hypothesize and I can get right in there with you. And I'm going to say a little bit of that in a second. But I'm not going to get too deep into that because, as Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, hope I said that right. I hear y'all say it all the time. I'm used to reading Edersheim, so we're in Fruchtenbaum now. Um, he tells us that the emphatic state of this verse is this. And what I mean by that is this. It's not about the writing or what he wrote. It's the fact that he wrote what he wrote with his finger. The finger is in the emphatic state. The verse is about the finger. It's not even about the writing. He used the finger to do the writing. What he wrote is inconsequential. That doesn't even matter. It's not something that John even wrote down in Scripture. So let me ask you a question. A couple questions. Brock, you can't answer. How many laws are there in the Bible? 613. How many were written by a man with a pen and parchment or goatskin and or whatever they wrote on? How many were wrote by a man? I'm really pitching underhanded. You just don't know it. I know it because I just read it last week. Uh, uh, it was uh, 603. So if we subtract 603 from 613, that leaves 10 laws. Those 10 laws were written by who? 
God. They were written by God. They're the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. Okay. How did God write those Ten Commandments? With his finger. Rod, you win. God wrote them with his finger, Exodus 31, 18. He, they were written with the finger of God. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 10. They were written with the finger of God. Question, why did Jesus write on the ground with his finger? Because, as Fruchtenbaum says, it shows that Jesus is the author of the commandment and he knew everything that the law said should happen. Everywhere Jesus went, he told people who he was. Everywhere Jesus went, he demonstrated who he was. And even when he's put on trial in front of the whole world, he says, watch this without saying a word. He gets down there with his finger and he writes on the ground and shows them that not only am I God, I'm the one that made the law. I wrote it with my finger. Are you, are you feeling that? I mean, that, that's just, it's overwhelming to me just to say that right now. And they're still standing there looking at him. They think they have him. And as though he heard them not. I don't like those words. It's not in the Greek. Um, I, I don't think Jesus was putting on a ploy or a play for this. It's he did what he did with purpose and intention. And he wrote with his finger on the ground to show them who he was and that he wrote it. And it's my law. Get with it and do what it says. Then he says it. <laughs> Verse 7. So when, so when they lit, wow. Um, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Let me say it the way one translation, translation says, the sinless one among you, go first, throw the stone. The sinless one among you, go first, throw the stone. Now, he just alley-oops them here. The way he said that, because this could be taken all kinds of ways, and they could really try to pin him down with it, but he, he would still be able to deal with that. What he is doing is saying, he's absolutely insisting that they obey his law the way he wrote it down as God. If you're going to come up in front of me and do this with this woman right here, you have to bring the witnesses with you and the man, where are they? So let the sinless one among you go first. Throw the stone. We're not finished with that. This would be a risky approach for anyone else, but not for Jesus. Deuteronomy 13, 9. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death. For this, this here. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses. The hands of the witnesses that see this are the ones that shall put them to death. This intimates that the witnesses that Jesus is asking for, that they say they've caught her in the act. The witnesses is intimated that they can't be guilty of the same sin because if they were, they couldn't throw the stone. And Jesus is saying, all right, if y'all are the witnesses, throw the stone. Not a single one of the Pharisees could throw the stone at her. But Jesus didn't ask the witnesses to throw the stone who did he say that to? He addressed that to the Pharisees and the scribes. What he is saying, and this is Fruchtenbaum gave me three pages on this little talk here. Normally, Pastor King gets this much. I got three pages, and I have to digest that much Arnold Fruchtenbaum for this. Um, what he's saying is it implies that they were not qualified to do it 
themselves. Can I read you a, a, a two verses? Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It's in the New American Standard, but I want to read it this way. It's just a little easier to read on the run because I only have eight minutes. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So, wow. On the last and great day of the feast, the high priest encircles the altar seven times. I want you to hear this. In Psalms 118, in verse 25, it says, they say, Hoshana Rabbah, save us in the highest. God, save us in the highest. It's no coincidence that Jesus does what he does next. In John chapter 7, in verses 37 through 39, he stands up and says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. They also say, Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3, Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of, the sal of salvation. The priests are speaking prophetically about the Messiah who is to come, the Holy Spirit who is to come. And Jesus stands up and says, I am the water that you're talking about in these verses. I'm the very one that you're looking to find, and I'm standing here in your midst. It's like when he tells the Pharisees at another time, you're, you're trying to find the Scriptures, but here I am. I'm talking to you right now, and you just don't get it. You search them, for in, for in them you think that you have eternal life. You're looking to them for a Messiah when you're talking to your Messiah. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So what is being said here as part of the feast, that verse that I just read and all of the other ones are pointing to the fact that there's a water, that Jesus is that water, and when you forsake him, you will be publicly embarrassed and humiliated, and your names will be written in the dust as the people who are accused. Did Jesus write that? I can't say that because we know that the emphasis is on the finger and Jesus is asserting his, God, his Godship to these people. He is the Messiah. But in all of that, and I know this is hurried, all of those scriptures are pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, as being that water, that Holy Spirit who would come um, after he uh, is crucified for us. So let's get to verse 9. We have three verses. The religious leaders have an aha moment. And when they heard it being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even until the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman was standing in the midst. They were convicted by their own conscience. Jesus let them think about this long enough to convict their own selves. And this word means to, to convict, to expose everything that they've done. They've exposed not only to themselves, but to everyone who is there. And hark, they have over two witnesses that are in the crowd that are seeing this spectacle as it unfolds. So it is forever established that they saw it when it happened. They have been brought to a point of utter confrontation, and they cannot deny the facts of everything that Jesus has done. And these leaders never once again tried to get Jesus to verbally contradict the law again after this one time. Wow. 
The woman was standing still in the midst, right in the middle of everybody, right in the very center. And in verse 10, Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Woman is not a term of disrespect. He referred to his mother the same way at the, the marriage uh, feast in Cana of Galilee in, in chapter 2 of John. Uh, but it is sentencing time here. Jesus is saying, but did you happen to see where the prosecution ran off to? The Pharisees are gone. The people who want you dead are gone. Did you happen to see where they went? Because if you look at Scripture, he's looking down at the ground. He's not, he's not looking at them. He's writing on the ground. They're gone. Did you happen to see where they went? Are there any outstanding charges? Did no man condemn you? Did anybody give a judgment against you that is dominating, subjugating, a final sentence that's related to a court trial? Did anybody do any of that kind of stuff? Are they still standing here waging war and bringing charges against you? And the answer is no. In effect, Jesus has told her that he had the last say in this legal matter and that now she is free. He says in John chapter 7, verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge according to righteous judgment. This woman, listen to this, was not given a free pass to commit adultery. We need to know that. Jesus did not wink, so to speak, at her sin. The necessary legalities were not in place for them to put her to death because they didn't obey the law. They were missing the partner. They were missing the witnesses. Verse 11, she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. If you're reading the King James like I am, there's a colon right there. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. When the trial ended, and I believe the trial ended on the colon i know it's not in the greek i get that but this is where i have to do that i'm away from my notes <laughs> it doesn't make it any more exciting anyway um on that colon we see that the law has come to that point and stopped but from the colon onward we see the heart of Jesus. He came to seek and to save. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to be there for people where they were, doing what they were doing, where they were. Not saying it's okay to do that, but to connect with the people that he wanted to bring in right relationship with him because he wanted them to be with him in heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He had to do what the law said, and he wasn't the judge. He couldn't judge anyway. They were pressing him to do something he couldn't do anyway, wasn't in a position to do. This woman, I, I like to look at it this way. And it's difficult. You, you wind up walking over a line you shouldn't walk over with this passage. But I think I can do this right here. To the right side of that colon. That's when he's saying, I'm not saying you're forgiven. What I'm saying is you need to go and sin no more. 
and in faith start walking this out because they had to have faith then too. And it's his grace that we've all experienced in this because every one of us have sinned. Every one of us have been that adulterous woman or an adulterous man or a lawbreaker that had to stand before God as the enemies of God, of Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 10. To know that we're wrong and convicted in our own conscience and that conviction brought by Holy Spirit and then us say, I believe I want you and we have to walk in faith. I'm so grateful for his grace. I'm so grateful that I don't have to do to be saved. But now that I am saved, I find myself wanting to do because of the relationship, not because I have to. I express my love to my wife because I want to, not because I have to. We express our love to God because we want to, not because we have to. Can you imagine this woman having a new lease on life? At the point of that colon. For her, that law was over at that point. Now she had a second chance. Where am I going with this, guys? I'm not going to make this easy and make this black and white for you tonight. You, you've got to read this and study this and, and see where it's going. And we're just going to use a, a little bit of really over-the-top subtlety. And you guys are just going to have to consider it and see where this is going for you. I encourage you to read chapter 7, the first 11 verses of chapter 8. And see what it speaks to you. It doesn't mean if you've never sinned, throw a stone. It means you're not qualified to throw the stone. You can't do any of that. And they knew it and they left. What it does mean to us is now, right here where we are, we're forgiven. And if you're not a believer in Christ, maybe you're a seeker tonight. Maybe we're just all the hometown crowd. We all believe in God. That is absolutely wonderful. But we look to him and he loves us. He told her, just go and sin no more. Now he's telling us, just walk it out, guys. I'm there with you. I'm with you the whole way. Father, tonight we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for blessing us everywhere we go. We thank you for your favor. Father, we will look to you as a people who are thankful for all that you've done for us, for, for loving us in spite of ourselves, for for you wooing us and drawing us into yourself to be in that right relationship with you because scripture says we're the, we're the object uh, of your special delight. Father, I, I bless these people and I thank you for them and pray that you get them all home safely and give them the sleep and the slumber of the righteous tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Pastor I appreciate that, Brother Bill excellent message challenge to go through this week so uh that's it for this evening so be in prayer for like i said drew for the sunday morning and then uh pastor ken and jen's return from the cruise uh, they should